0: are listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.
1: All right, we are on chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession. I don't see hymnals up here Um, Are there hymnals in the seats? There are hymnals in the back. Okay. If you would like a hymnal to have a copy of the confession, uh, Danny has some in the back. He can bring some around. Uh, You can pull it up on your phone. You can uh, get your own copy and bring it with you. We're in chapter 19 this week, which is the law of God. It's an incredibly important chapter. I feel like we say that every time um, because these things are important and uh, formative and important for us in our Christian life. Um, Danny, could you, can we turn on these two lights without turning on those two lights? Yes, perfect, thank you, well done. Um, Before we we go to to the text, uh, to this topic, let me open us in prayer this morning. Lord, we are thankful for Uh, your provision. We are thankful for the rain. Uh, We're thankful that you can wake us this morning and you have brought us here. We pray for those this morning who are not able to be with us, whether they're traveling, whether they're ill, uh, for many reasons. We pray that you would bless them and be with them as well and help us uh, to ponder your law, to love your law, and to be conformed more and more after the image of Christ. We thank you, Father, for our Savior, Jesus Christ. and In his name we pray. Amen. All right, we are in chapter 19, as I said, the law of God. And of course, we have to begin with resources. Uh, If you haven't been here before, I'm listing a bunch of different uh, resources that um, if you're interested in uh, are out there. And this is just a beginning of what's out there for you to think if you want to dive deeper into some of these topics. Um, These are general uh, topics I'm listing first, uh, systematic or general resources, systematic theologies. Um, all of which will discuss our topic today, the law of God, um, uh, will, to various, uh, various angles and various uh, depths. And so I've got a couple of particular um, resources. And the first, just thinking, well, thinking about the law. And the first is just an exposition of the Ten Commandments. Often uh, what we're going to see is the Ten Commandments still are a guide for the Christian life today. We are still called to obey the moral law of God as it is given in the Ten Commandments. And uh, there's several good expositions. We can start with our catechisms. They're wonderful. Uh, The Shorter Catechism is great, punchy to the point. The Larger Catechism has a great expansion. Discussion of what every commandment uh, includes, and they're wonderful. And I would highly encourage this for meditation, for prayer, um, and to learn. Uh, We also have a lot of the older systematic theologians would include in their systematic theologies a discussion and an exposition of the Ten Commandments. So you have Calvin, you have Turretin, you have Brockle. Um, I think maybe after that point, it's it stops a little bit and expositions of the Ten Commandments became their own thing outside of systematic theologies. Um, but there's a lot of great older resources on this that are are, are phenomenal, and we would do well to to read those. For a contemporary treatment, I would highly recommend this book by J.V. Fesco, The Rule of Love. It's brief, um, but it's uh, well written. It's very engaging, and you can see the um, the subtitle broken, fulfilled, and applied. So it's broken by Adam and us, fulfilled by Christ, but still applied to our lives. Uh, so it kind of goes through these phases of redemptive history and helps us understand the law of God and a big, uh, bigger redemptive historical context, but very also um, concrete for our lives as well. So I highly recommend that. It's a wonderful little book. We actually were doing this in community group a couple years ago when um, uh, COVID hit, and so we stopped like it three or four. Um, So we didn't make it all the way through. So that's a a general um, uh, exposition of the Ten Commandments. I've got several this morning. I've mentioned this book before. The Law is Not of Faith. It's an edited volume um, by Brian Estelle, J.V. Fesco, David Van Drunen. Um, And this, if you want to think about the law, particularly in the Mosaic covenant, the Old Testament covenant, the uh, people of Israel, what does the law mean in that context? This is a great place uh, to start Uh, a number of essays and you might find a few that are particularly interesting to you. Uh, I would highly recommend that volume. I'm passing that around. Let's see what we have next. David Van Drunen. A biblical case for natural law, and we'll briefly hit on this today, but natural law is a old historic category uh, for the moral law of God as it's written on our hearts, basically. It's embedded in creation. Uh, The moral law of God is given to us first in our hearts, and Adam and Eve knew it by God inscribing it upon their hearts. And this is basically making that case. Uh, natural law has kind of fallen on hard times theologically these days, and this is a, an attempt to recover uh, recover that. Very short. I think I'm not even sure if the print's available anymore, but it's on Kindle for like two bucks. So that's a great, easy uh, read. A great read. Well, we want to start thinking about uh, politics. What, uh, what does the law of God have to do with politics? Um, what does it have to do with my life on the ground here today? I think um, this book by David Van Drunen, Politics After Christendom, Political Theology in a Fractured World. This is a great place uh, to, to go wonderful book, especially the first half. The second half gets into a lot of legal theory, which is fascinating uh, for some people. Uh, may not be for others, and that's fine, but especially the first half. And I have other books uh, similar to this, if you want to read more on this. This is like one of my uh, areas of interest, and um, I would love to talk to you about that. So I'll pass those books around. And then finally, one more book today for you. Um, unfortunately, these aren't book give- giveaways, um, but these are for you to look at and uh, you can give back to me um, this one is a book called Theonomy a Reformed Critique you have may you may have heard of the term theonomy and this is a movement that was big in reformed uh, in the reformed world, especially in the 80s and 90s and the goal of theonomy was to make um, America make all civil you know nations today, Um, look like the Old Testament Israel and follow their uh, judicial laws, their civil laws, and to implement them here today. And this is um, a book that doesn't agree with that. Uh, I don't agree with that. And uh, we'll see why in the confession a little bit. But this is a great, uh, uh, this is, again, an edited volume with a bunch of professors, mostly, I think, mostly if not all from Westminster Theological Seminary in uh, Philadelphia and California uh, so this is from 1990, thus the beautiful cover we have here. Um, so I'll pass that around. You can look at it. If you're interested, if you want to talk about these things, um, I would love to talk more later. So those are our resources today. Any questions about those? I'm introducing even some, some topics and ideas here that we'll get to in a few, mo- few minutes. But All right. Well, let's go into the confession and see where we can get today. This may be the first time I'm not getting through it all and I apologize, but we'll do what we can. Um, So we are on chapter 19, and we'll just begin with section one, and we'll work through it. We see the word law in the title, and oftentimes I think law is a negative word to us. We hear the word law, and we recoil, and we'll see rightfully so, I think, in many ways. Um, The law, as, as we'll see, does condemn, but I think it is, is we need to uh, as Christians we have a new relationship now to the law and we can see the law in a very positive sense. Look at Psalm one uh, one nineteen and the whole thing, the largest chapter in the Bible, the longest chapter in the Bible. Looking at law positively for you know page after page in your Bible. And the law itself comes to us as a reflection of God's nature. The law of God, as we'll see in the moral law, is not arbitrary. It's not just something dropped down from on high to make life hard or difficult for us. It is a reflection of God's very character and how God has designed us to be. And so the law is a very good thing for us, even though we have broken it, even though we are condemned by it. so we'll frame it that way, and let's, let's dive into to section one here and see how this applies to us. God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him, Adam, and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with power and ability to keep it. So this, God gave to Adam a law and they don't explain it until section three, but this is the moral law of God, what we call the moral law of God. So God gave to Adam the moral law. And it's interesting, he says, as a covenant of works. And this is where in the confession, um, I love the the Westminster Confession because it grounds everything theologically in covenant theology. Uh, The baseline for the whole confession is covenant theology. And we see here, law is grounded not in something random. It's, it's, it's not a, a random thing God has told us to do, but it's grounded in the covenant of works. And we, could, we went back uh, in chapter seven, we discussed this at length, what the covenant of works is. But basically, it's, it's, it's explained right here. God created Adam and Eve, writing the law upon their hearts and said, if you obey this, you will have eternal life. You will be able to eat of the, tr- of the fruit of the tree, uh, of the tree of life forever. But if you disobey my law, and part of that there was eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you disobey, you will surely die. And this arrangement is a covenantal one. It was based upon Adam's obedience to the law. Adam's fulfillment of the covenant of works. Was Adam going to be faithful or would he not be faithful? And it says here he had the power and ability to keep the law. Adam and Eve were able to keep the law, all of it, from start to finish in the garden. And it was given to them as a covenant of works by which they were bound to God in relationship to him. And it was dependent upon their obedience. Um, And we see... uh, we see here that the law was given to Adam and we'll say, well, how was it given to him? And I think um, looking through, looking at Romans 2 and places like that, we do see it is written on his heart. We don't see God giving the 10 commandments to Adam in the garden, but God gives his moral law. Adam knew it naturally by virtue of being created. He didn't have sin to distort his thinking or to distort his desires. He knew by nature what was pleasing to God. And it was written on his heart in the same way that um, Paul in Romans 2 argues that that we all have the law etched upon our hearts today. Although in our unrighteousness, we suppress it, we try not to hear it or listen to it or obey it. It is still there written on all of us, even though um, in a muted uh, form, because we are in sin and do not heed the law of God. Okay, so that's a lot. Covenant theology, skipping over the surface there. The law came to Adam in the garden as a covenant of works. We'll stop there and, um, for, for questions and comments. Are we tracking? Does this make sense? If it doesn't, I would love to, love to hear questions. I'm sure you're not the only one who's not.
2: The promise of eternal life is more, we always see it in a negative statement, right?
1: So right. It's implied by the fact that
2: there is a tree there or something or it's understood in a sense.
1: Yeah. That, so you're going back to the covenant of works. Uh, how do we get the promise of eternal life in there? A couple of things. Yeah, the 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 um, the tree of life there represents this eternal life, and we see it actually comes back all through Scripture. And then in uh, Revelation 21, we will eat of the tree of the uh, the tree of life in the new heavens and new earth. So we see this connection. Even at the beginning, it was pointing us towards the end. Um, but also the Sabbath rest, uh, that seventh day, uh, that. Uh, represents the eternal rest of God that Adam and Eve would achieve if they would, uh, if they would have obeyed, and so the whole Sabbath principle embedded in creation as well um, as the seventh day of the week um, prior to Christ's accomplishment uh, shows that's what you're working towards as rest, and now. The Sabbath is the first day of the week and is now how we live our life out of the Sabbath rest that we are given in Christ. So there's some eschatological um, uh, swapping there based on what Christ has done. But the Sabbath principle, I'd say, is another reason why we see the promise of eternal life held out in the garden. All right, let's go to section two. Section two, this law... The moral law, as we'll come to find in the next section, after Adam's fall continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness. And as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written in two tables. The first four commandments containing our duty towards God and the other six our duty towards man. So the law did not expire when sin entered. It was and still is binding upon all people. It is a perfect rule of righteousness. It's a measurement of righteousness. It shows you what is righteous and how you ought to proceed along righteous lines. The law of God is good and it continues to bind us today. Um, and it will use that word binding later in section 5 um and so we see the the moral law of god was given to israel later it was codified it was given explicitly at Sinai in the Ten Commandments to Israel to show them because sin, we have lost uh, our ability to understand it completely as it's written on our hearts. So God was kind in giving uh, the written law that we would know what pleases God, what honors God. And that's the point here is the law given to Adam was also the law given to Israel in the Ten Commandments and written on Two tables, um, just a way of saying two tablets. Um, and historically, they've uh, often spoken. There's, there's, uh, we see in the in the account in Exodus, there were two tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on. And historically, we'd say the first table is one through four, duties of man to God, and the second table was the other tablet. Uh, uh, six through ten are um, duties towards man. Uh, scholarship now doesn't believe that they're separated that way. They think all 10 were written on each tablet. Not that it really matters, but um, it does if we're understanding ancient Near East treaties, because this is how treaties were written. They were given two copies and one was given to each party. Um, and so we see these two tablets. One was given for Israel. Well, they're both given to Israel because God didn't take it one up into heaven, but it's representing the two parties of this uh, treaty, this contract, this covenant that God and Israel were were. Um, entering in. If you want more about that, read The Law is Not a Faith. Um, there's a lot more there. Um, but that, that you hear two tables of the law, and now we just speak um, symbolically, saying there's kind of two halves to it, even though we believe all 10 were written on each tablet uh, when God gave them there. In the,
3: table one is one through five? One through four. Okay, so table two is, is five through five ten. Through
1: ten. Mm-hmm.
3: Okay, and five is not
1: father mother. That's right. So, it's kind of a hinge, yeah, it's kind of a hinge that could go both ways because father and mother, as if you read the larger catechism, how it explains father and mother doesn't mean just biological father and mother. It means all in authority over you. So we could say spiritual authority, we can say God, we can say all kinds of things. So it kind of hinges, you know, between the two. But we say generally it falls on the second table as we do think of human authority, Yeah. Five doesn't obviously not belong to one through four. Right. No, I think you're right.
3: Because one through four is like, you know, authorities, authorities, authorities. Mm -hmm. But God being an authority. Right. And then it transitions to, okay, he's going to act through human authorities.
1: Right. Yeah. Not
3: the worst have on the first
1: table, right, exactly. And I think at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because they're all the Ten Commandments and all right. bind us. Right. Um, but historically, we've spoken because one through four, it's, it's worship, it's how you worship, it's when you worship, uh, those kinds of things. And this isn't explicitly like worship related. And so they'll say, yeah, this is more like how we relate to other people. But your point's well taken and I'm totally fine with that as well. So, um, the point here is the moral law of God is given upon Mount Sinai and Ten Commandments to Israel. So let's go to section three. Besides this law, commonly called moral, <clears throat> God was pleased to give to the peoples of Israel as a church under age, ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ's graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. All right, so we're getting into some waters here. And so I'm going to use a PowerPoint in a way I don't normally do this. Hopefully it's helpful. So we're now talking about different kinds of law. So we're talking about uh, the threefold division of the law that was given to Israel. And so the first kind is the moral law that we've been talking about. And we'll come back to the moral law in section five. But section three and four are a little bit of excurses, excurses, um, talking about other topics that are important and are very, very important. Um, but it's going to show the other kind of law that's in the Old Testament. And so we'll come back to flesh out the moral law in a few moments. We have the ceremonial law here in 1903. So there's the moral law that was given to Israel, but also ceremonial laws were given. And so we see uh, the confession does a great job explaining what these are Uh, typical ordinances, uh, types and shadows uh, that point, that are types pointing to Christ, partly of worship prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits. So we see here the sacrifices. We see here all of the feasts of the Old Testament. These are pointing them to Christ, their need of Christ, the the reality of redemption in the coming Messiah. So there's such great fruit that we can can, uh, see as we study the law, especially these ceremonial laws uh, that we're speaking of now, as it points Israel to Christ. And then it also is holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties. All, so um, so there it also demonstrates uh, different ways there to honor God um, and it says these have been abrogated. So let's fill this out a little bit. First, abrogated by Christ. We don't do the ceremonial law. We don't have circumcision anymore. We don't do the feasts. We don't do sacrifices. We don't have a temple. All these things are abrogated because Christ was the fulfillment of them. Christ has completed all of them. And so all these external rites and rituals that Israel practiced day after day, year after year, came to completion. It was tiresome and wearing them out. And they knew that would come to an end one day when somebody would fulfill it and Jesus has. So we don't go back to the Old Testament. what Galatians is all about. We don't go back to the Old Testament. That's what Hebrews is all about. We have something better. We have Christ himself. It was all pointing to Christ, but we have Christ. So we don't need these ceremonial laws. They are abrogated. Christ fulfilled them. And there's several uses we could talk about. Different people talk about these uses in different ways. Uh, It prefigures Christ, points to Christ, and provides instruction of moral duties. That's what the confession says here. And some call the ceremonial law an appendix to the first table of the moral law, which I think might be a helpful way of thinking about it. The ceremonial law is how do we worship God in a way that points us to Christ for a time under the Old Testament law, under the, the Mosaic covenant. So, um, the ceremonial law is very important. And in fact, um, my plan at this time, Lord willing, after I finish preaching through 1 Peter in the evening, probably at the end of the year, I think it's going to line up well at the end of the year, I'll finish that. And so starting next year, I'm going to preach uh, through at least part of Leviticus uh, as we talk about some of these exact things, the ceremonial law, the different kinds of sacrifices. How does this point to Christ? Uh, and so I, I hope that will be fruitful. And so we still use the ceremonial law, but we don't observe the ceremonial law today. We'll, uh, we'll stop there. What, um, yeah, comments? The
3: well, law doesn't always nicely break up when you look at individual laws Right. moral ceremonial right. and civil mm-hmm. virginity tests. Where does that fit?
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: Um. You have so obviously a lot of these things to judgment, right? And right. And a lot of how how to apply, say, how does when, when you take civil laws, how to how to extract principles from mm-hmm. the civil laws, right? And how do you apply right. those principles yes. into a given culture in a given time and place?
1: That's right. Yes, and. Um, we're, we're looking at, you know, th- there is criticism of this threefold division of the law, but it's what the confession teaches, clearly, and it, begu- it begins all the way back to Augustine, who started talking about this threefold division of the law. But you're right, it doesn't completely, we can't, we can't take every line of, of uh, Deuteronomy, uh, of Leviticus, and put it under one of these three categories, because there's overlap, there's... But it's
3: so helpful. It's kind of it honest. is, right, it is... Well, it's just not- perfectly
1: clean that's right exactly exactly and there's examples like the ones you gave and there's others that's like okay what is this what do we do with this and I'm no expert on this and uh, and so there's a lot of, of you know discussion I'd like to have on that um, I don't know and I think every th- there's a lot of um, and we need to take everyone case by case and understand what is this pointing to? What is the point? What is the reason? And, and we'll get to judicial laws in a second. And we can maybe see there's different reasons for these different kinds. And we can understand a little bit why God gave these particular laws to Israel and then classify them um, uh, under one of these three categories. Or maybe, it's on, you know, maybe it is somewhat civil, uh, judicial, maybe, and also somewhat ceremonial. Uh, and it falls in both. Um, and we can you know, talk about how that would apply. But I think that's a good point.
0: Why we want to have a worship service of the style that like our church does, um, or, or something similar. The many churches say, you know, this is very important that it's in order. Um, but then I have heard other Christians talk about um, because the laws are abrogated, um, we're, we're not bound to have things echoing the Old Testament ceremonies. So um, how does how does that fit into our thinking?
1: Yeah, that's great. So <clears throat> What I'd want to say is the moral law is absolutely binding. So the moral law that speaks, um, the the general principle of the moral law is we worship how God has called us to worship. Um, And that's part of the second commandment. Um, That's part of the the moral law of God is we worship how God has commanded us to worship. Now, the question is, what has God commanded us to worship? Well, these purely ceremonial laws, we don't believe that that's how God has called the New Testament church to worship today. Um, And so we don't do sacrifices uh, in our worship services. But the question is, okay, are there principles that we can apply from the ceremonial law today? I would say generally no, but to the extent that the ceremonial law is an appendix to the first table of the moral law, maybe it is explaining something of the first table of the moral law for us. So the ceremonial law in and of itself doesn't bind us today, but the moral law does. And maybe parts of the ceremonial law can show us what the moral law means. But we need to be really careful if we're going to apply anything from the Old Testament today as far as worship. Um, and, you know, you could take that, take that statement I just made and say, Jason's a heretic. Um, I'm not speaking of the moral law. Yes, there's lots from the Old Testament that applies today, but I'm speaking of the ceremonial law. We have to be really careful before we apply any of that one-to-one today for us to practice. Um, and I would err on the side of saying, no, it's not what we follow uh, and not what we do today. But there might be instances we can have some discussion about.
0: Um, uh, for example, with ceremonial laws today, there's been a growing interest among evangelicals in the Cedar mm-hmm. and in yep. Passover and keeping Passover. And I know some Christians who practice the feasts, who build a booth out of their backyard. Right, right. Who, um, you know, for the feast of booths, and they go to like a... It's not a Messianic congregation, but it's like a Christian Jew. Yeah,
1: yeah, right.
0: And I I personally think that's a little bit dangerous because we're going back to what you said about Galatians and Hebrews saying, these things are done. That's right. The fulfillment is Christ. Right, exactly. The
1: fact that Christ is here. Absolutely.
0: Some folks would say, oh, but we're just... Celebrating, looking ahead to Christ—that's the point of going back hmm. and remembering these ways. And it's—I um, I wonder why at this particular time yeah. in
1: evangelical yeah.
0: history we're becoming fascinated by that
1: again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just—I I really wonder why. It's probably wider social issues. Yeah. No. And, and I I I think what you said is great. And um, to add to that. Um, I think it's, it's you know, to sit down and do a Seder meal, is that inherently sinful? Well, I don't think so because I think you can do it, for it in a purely educational way. I think it's okay to do it educationally, but to do it for a religious purpose or to have a religious experience or to, to do something like that, I, I think that's not helpful. We can sit down and say, you know, here are the different cups and here are the different you know, the bitter herbs and uh, all this kind of stuff and see how it points to Christ and say, praise God for Jesus. Yes, that's fine. But I'd, I wouldn't want to organize like a churchwide thing or something like that. Or uh, it's confusing at best. Right. And, and I think harmful uh, at worst. Kids, right, like it's, right. It's like, okay, well, what are, what are we trying to communicate yeah. here? Like, is right. Is right. Friday
3: important because of Jesus' death? Mm-hmm. Or is mm-hmm. it important because it's, you know, the high day of Passover that's right. or... But then again, we also have the ideas of ceremonies, like, say, the Anglican Church. Or right. Catholic Church, how right. Christian ceremonies. That's right. That point I, to Christ, that might be and deep like the Old Testament mm-hmm. ceremonies. I mean, yeah, not, that's right. It's
1: not an easy solution to mm-hmm. question, but I, I think I'm just curious why, I've been wondering a lot why it's happening now. Yeah. Why are we thinking about these things now? Whereas right. When I was a kid, people didn't really think that much about it. Right. Um, we have one, two, and three.
3: So, like, one or two Sundays ago, during the, like, regal portion of the corporate worship, uh, we alternated, like, ten commandments as stated in the Old Testament, That's right. and then, like, uh, you know, quotes from the New Testament, where either the commandment was restated explicitly right. or, like, highly implied, like, with yeah. no um, ambiguous. That's right. I'm wondering if you could do the same thing with, like, the key points in the ceremonial law. So you would have the instructions for the temple, but then you, the New Testament would see that we're living stones. That's right, right? exactly. So you see yeah. circumcision on a physical body, but then you'd see circumcision as a setting apart of, of the, you know, the church from the world, for example. Right. Um, you know what I mean? It's like yeah, you know, yeah, that's it right. Go away, it just got restated <clears throat> and fulfilled and that's right. So at least we meditate upon yes. What it yes.
1: Means. And that's where I hope, you know, preaching through Leviticus, we can do some of that um, and see why it matters for us today. Right. And it does. We don't follow it uh, with, our, with our lives, but we do need to meditate upon it and see how it points to Christ. I think that's, that's very well said. Thank think you were number two. Either of y'all? Both of y'all? <laughs>
2: yeah, so yeah, I just think yeah, the issue of is like, reenacting or redoing certain. Yeah, it seems like, you know, the primary value could just be, like, if it is kids or something, you're reading, reading a Bible story, maybe reenacting helps them to remember yeah, what happened. Yeah, right. And say, hey, this is what they did. That's, that's a historical sort of reenactment. Mm-hmm. This is what they would do. Yeah. You know, so that seems to make sense in terms of helping kids to see when you're reading through the story. Right, they, yeah. It, it helps us as well. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of, of attaching a covenant or a religious... Significant. Sometimes people look at that as like a truly religious, like God is right. blessing this activity, right. Right. especially. Well, I think I think when we start to get into that, it's where get the lines get way blurred, and mm-hmm. I think maybe that happens. My my guess could be that because we downplayed um, the sacraments, that's right. Downplayed what exactly. Given, and then as this is this is this is the sign that points to Christ and His redemption accomplished, mm-hmm. not these mm-hmm. other things. Exactly it's because communion has become so de-emphasize that us let's, let's start adding some
1: other thing. That's right. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. So Rihanna. I know that have done this and created
0: these groups a lot of times pull themselves out of churches and then became like home church mm-hmm. oriented, and then are looking it's like and they're
1: legitimate Christians as far as I can, you know. Yeah. I know them.
0: They are trying to create those things that God has already ordained, and almost like
1: as a replacement, which it's almost <clears throat> like filling this the hole of worship. Like, yeah. How can we do yeah. this in a not biblical way. That's right. And that's where when we come to the table week by week, we're coming with all this like Old Testament realities, all the realities of the, of the Passover, um, just it's, it's pregnant with meaning from all these things. And so if we would only like look at it through the lens of the supper as we do commune with God week by week, it, it grows our appreciation for what the Lord's doing in the supper. Um, but that's, that's where we do it. It's not in these kind of ad hoc, you know, determinations of, of doing the, the Passover today. Yeah. Here. You do not need my you not <laughs> All right. Thank you. All right. Let's go to section four, where we have the other uh, the other judicial laws, as it's called, or the, the civil laws. Uh, to them also, to Israel, as a body politic, so as a as a political entity, as a geopolitical um, body, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. So here we have the civil law, the judicial law, as the uh, the confession calls it. And these are all kinds of things like Uh, You have to have a a fence around the roof of your house. Uh, That's a judicial law. Or the the punishments uh, for uh, for crimes. Uh, These are judicial laws that have expired with the expiration of Israel as a theocratic nation. Um, And so, yeah, here, we expired with the theocracy of Israel, but there's a general equity that's binding. Um, Now, that's the million-dollar question. What is... Uh, general equity. What does that mean? And uh, I won't go into that today. Read um, the biblical case for natural law and read the law is not a faith. Uh, Those talk about it and I can talk about it later. We don't have time today. Um, But the general equity just refers to, as I, you know, with that, the book, natural law. It it refers to that which is ordered and right as is written upon our heart as the state is to govern relationship between man and man. And so, There's a general equity, a fairness, a rightness, a justice that is embedded perfectly in the Old Testament law that we ought to strive after today. But that does not mean that the punishment of adultery needs to be the same today. It does mean adultery is more serious than a lesser offense of of theft or of of, um, lying. Um, but But there are general principles that we can pull. So the general equity comes from the judicial law. And there's a lot there, and that's where the whole theonomy debate uh, can, can enter in quickly. Um, let me see what else we have here. Yeah, the, so the uses of the judicial law are to order the theocracy of Israel. That's why it's there, to order the nation. Um, And that's a use to them primarily. And we can look and and learn certain things about uh, how separate they were from the world. We can learn all kinds of things about what God has designed for Israel under the the theocratic arrangement of the Mosaic Covenant. Um, And I I like this, again, some have said it is an appendix to the second table of the moral law. So it's fleshing out maybe some of the details of the second table of the law, what that might look like, how we do love our neighbor. Why do you you put a a fence around your roof? Well, because people uh, lived up there and you had children. Children up there, and it was wrong. It was negligent to not have a, a fence because your child could fall off and die. Okay, it was a law to show us how to um, not murder. To uh, it was a law to show us how to uh, value the life of others by not being negligent. And so now today, you know, the the, the classic way of talking about this is today we put a fence around pools. Right? It's a parallel today uh, to, uh, pr- to preserve the life of others, to you know, the neighbor kid who wanders around and might fall in your pool and die. Well, we want to be careful of that. And so we put a fence around our pool. I think insurance companies require that anyway if, if state laws don't. So, um, so there's all kinds of interesting uh, connections and parallels we can draw here. But the, the, the reality is it's, it's fleshing out the second table for Israel, and it's not binding today. But we can draw principles that are good for governance today. Uh, so, again, I'll, I'll stop there for questions. Years ago, um, pastors would refer to
0: something as being cultural, and they were referring to laws mm-hmm. that were being obeyed or disobeyed. Were they ceremonial or judicial or
1: either? That's a good question. Um, I uh, So, cultural laws in the Old Testament. Uh, probably it would be judicial. Um, I mean, it... All of these together created the culture of Israel. All of these were binding upon them expressly and explicitly. Um, And these were creating a culture that was important for the nation of Israel. So probably they were talking about either of these. Um, the ceremonial, which was religiously oriented, and the judicial, which was simply you know how to regulate a nation. Um, I, I don't want to say they're not relevant because they were simply cultural. I, would, I think these are more theologically theologically grounded ways of saying they don't apply anymore. They don't apply, the ceremonial laws don't apply because Christ has fulfilled them. He has abrogated them by his life and his death. And judicial laws don't apply today, not because they were simply cultural, but because they applied to that nation that God established as his own then. And that that nation is not in existence today uh, as the theocracy under God. So they don't apply outside. So I would want to nuance it a little bit more than saying simply cultural. Um, I would want to pull these theological reasons. Is that what you're asking? Getting up? Yeah, okay. All right, let's fill out uh, the, the moral law section in the five minutes we have left. Great. Um, I told you we probably wouldn't get through it today. Uh Section 5: The moral law of God doth forever bind all as well as, ju- uh, as well justified persons as others to the obedience thereof. And that not, o- not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect to the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve but much strengthen this obligation. So this was an argument uh, at the time of the, of the uh, writing of the Westminster standards. It is still a discussion today. Does the law of God bind us now? Does the moral law of God, now we're in this moral law category. Does it bind us today? The answer is yes. We are required to fulfill, uh, to to obey the law of God. So it binds all people, justified and unjustified, uh, sinner and saint. Everyone is obligated to keep the whole moral law of God. But... Um, where should I I go here? Um, Well, but we don't keep it to earn our salvation, right? So this is the key distinction. If you are in Christ, you are not under the law as a covenant of works, as we see in the next section, and we'll we'll read it in a moment. We're not under the law as a covenant of works to earn salvation, but we are under the law now as a rule of righteousness, as a a path of, of obedience to God. Um, as living out of gratitude, this is the way in which God calls us to live. Um, Sorry, I'm trying to figure out where do we go in the next few minutes. Um, So let me read the beginning of section six, which uh, helps clarify some of this. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works, to be thereby justified or condemned. So it's important. Christians are not under the law and your disobedience to God does not render you uh, outcast. Uh, Your sin as a as a as a regenerate um, member of the body of Christ, your sin does not cast you out and say you are now not justified. So the law is not a covenant of works. If you break the law, you are not disowned as a child of God. Key, critical. So you're not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned. But it is of great use to them as well as to others. And so we go through several uses here. Uh, The first one is in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty. It directs and binds them to walk accordingly. So here, this rule of life. This is God telling us how to live and we can now now, uh, desire to please God. We can now obey the law. We're now enabled. Our our will is now able to obey God and we can follow the law of God. That's why meditating on the 10 commandments, learning the 10 commandments, learning all the, the laws that's revealed in scripture is important for us as Christians to know how to obey God. This is our calling, not in order to be saved, but because we are saved, This is what we do. We are now people of the law. And that's why we can have uh, Psalm 119 uh, that goes on and on and on about how he loves the law of God. And why does he love the law of God? Because it reflects God's nature. And this is how God has shown us we are to live to please him. So the law is good. We can look at the law in a wonderful, um, positive way because it reflects the gracious God that we have. Um, people will call this, theologians will call this the third use of the law. Uh, some might call it the, the normative uh, use or the, um, yeah, the, the normative use of the moral law here. So it is the, the path that Christians are to follow. Uh, the second reason we won't read it here is, um, uh, what, did, what did we say here? It's, Pedagogical. It points us to our need for Christ. The law does condemn us. Yes, as Christians, we do feel guilt when we break the law of God, and that drives us to confession and drives us to repentance. Uh, we, uh, we, are co- we, are, we are drawn back to the beauty and the necessity of Christ every time we break the law of God. It brings us to our knees, and it's a pedagogical function teaching us uh, of the grace of Christ more and more. And so the law has this incredibly important function in the Christian's life. And so um, theologians will often call this the second use of the law. Um, it compels genuine obedience um, in, in these. Um, well, sorry, let me let me we'll stop there. We'll go to this third use of the law here. Uh, and we'll call this the civil use of the law. Now, this is confusing because um, you hear this category: it's the three uses of the law, uh, the rule of life, the pedagogical, the civil three uses of the moral law, but then we have the three kinds of law. One is judicial, ceremonial, and moral often this judicial will refer to as civil. So it's confusing because we have civil here, one of the uses of the moral law, and it's its own category of law. And so we need to be really careful how we're talking about these things because this can be very confusing very quickly. But the civil use of the law is a general um, common grace restraint of sin on all people because we have the law written on our hearts. And it's, it's uh, God restraining us by the law being written on our hearts. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, God is using his law uh, to restrain us. We're not as bad as we would be. So let me go to this um, summary here if that's helpful at all. I'll leave it up here uh, as we conclude. I will say, let me read section 7. Um, I think it does a great job putting a point on this. Neither are the four mentioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel. So all these uses here, rule of life, pedagogical, civil, they're not contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. Oftentimes, uh, we think of law and grace as antithetical, and they are antithetical as a means to salvation. You can come to God by keeping the law perfectly, or you come to God by grace in Jesus Christ. So they are antithetical. There are two ways of salvation. But in Christ, now these two realities are put together. And because we are in Christ, we can look at the law positively. And the law does guide us, and the law is good for us, not as a means of salvation, not as a covenant of works any longer but to show us how we can live and honor God. And that's the point of this last section that we can freely cheerfully do what is the will of God. And that requires us to know it, to study it, to be disciplined, but to do it because we have been we have such a great salvation, such a great savior. So there's our theological framework for the law, the three kinds of law. And each law ha- has its own uses um, that we can think of and we've considered briefly. And then the, what's left for us to do is to go meditate on the law of God. Think about these things and pray that the Lord would enable us and help us to keep it for his glory. Not for salvation, but for his glory. Final comment here.
0: Keeping the law, all the law, is a joy. It is. Studying them and meditating upon it and having
1: become a part of our spirit and our very being is a joy. It's it is. it is And that's Psalm 119 right there. It's a wonderful thing. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have given us your law. And even more that you've given Christ who has fulfilled the law for us that we might now walk in newness of life and obedience to you. Help us to do this. Give us a desire and a zeal for these things to please you, to honor you. We thank you that you have shown us how to do that in your word through the law. Help us, Father, as we are people under grace who now can keep your law. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.